the message today. I would have, I'll give some credit where it is actually due. I would encourage you, if you have an uh, opportunity to ever see this book somewhere where you can pick it up and look at it and spend some time reading it, it's a book that I've had for quite a few years now. Didn't realize how long. It was first published in 2003. Uh, that's quite a while ago. A guy by the name of Dave McLeod. Uh, by show of hands, how many know who J Dave McLeod is? One. Okay. There's a few that still know who he is. <laughs> he was a teacher at Emmaus. And the title of a book that he did and a lot of research in it is called The Seven Last Things. And I'll just, we'll only be covering one or perhaps two of the seven last things. It's in Revelation chapter 19. We'll spend a little time in, in uh, uh, the chapter before there. But before that, it is odd in a way, but not really, that I was struck by Alex's message on the radio this morning and how it aligns with, with uh, some of the message I'm going to give today. Before we get started, let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come into your very presence. I'm asking that you would help me today with this uh, short message that you would speak to us today as believers. We recognize that there is a, always a possibility that there would be someone here outside of Christ, and we would ask that you would work in the hearts of that person, that they might recognize their need and respond before it is, as has often been said in the past, before it's forever too late. We just ask for your help today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you'll think that I'm never going to get to the passage, but I'm going to do a few things here. Let me read the words to a song that's in the back of our choice hymns. It's number 544. It's a song sung to a country. My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. Let's skip to the third verse. Let music swell the breeze and ring from all the trees, sweet freedom's song. Let mortal tongues awake, let all that breathe partake. Let rocks their silence break, the sound prolong. Looks like uh, someone that wrote this song uh, knew something about the scripture. It says, let rocks their silence break. Last verse. Our Father's God. Who is our Father's God? For Christians, we have earthly fathers. I had a father, I had a grandfather, had a couple grandfathers that I knew, and this would apply to me. 
our Father's God, to thee, author of liberty, to thee we sing. Long may our land be bright with freedom's holy light. Protect us by thy might, great God, our King. Is this the country we live in? Can we sing with, with enthusiasm about the country that we live in? This song, I think, is the country that perhaps my grandfather lived in. Maybe my father. And maybe I as a child. I don't think we live in that land anymore. And I don't think we'll ever recover from it. The lesson today, I would give it a couple titles. One of them is The Jesus I'll Never Know. The other title I would give it is What is the World Coming To? And I want to talk about the word know. There are two ways of knowing things. One is to know here in my head. Oh, yeah, I know, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. And the other is to know by experience. I mean, if you've ever, uh, we talked about this, I think, on, on uh, Saturday. As a child, how many of you, as a child, couldn't resist the temptation to touch the stove? <laughs> you burned your hand, didn't you? You know by experience that the stove is hot. Your parents could tell you, you could know it up here, but until you've touched the stove, you don't know it. Okay. That will come into play when I talk about the Jesus I'll never know. Let me uh, share a couple more things. Uh, another, you can show, show your hands on this too. How many have heard of Davos, uh, the World Economic Forum? How many of you have heard of that? Okay. The World Economic Forum. They had a, I saw a little bit of this on C-SPAN. And there was a lady on there. They had all these world leaders. They fly off to Europe in jet planes and meet together and talk about the world economy. And the, at, uh, during this uh, one time, there was a lady that came onto the stage. They had a bunch of world leaders there. She was wearing a headdress and had red paint on her face. And she went to each one of them as she went across the stage. She was some kind of a uh, religious person, I think. Uh, I think her religion was uh, uh, the climate change, you know, uh, or uh, to try to prevent the climate change. And she went along and she breathed on each one of them. And they all just sit there, sat there and took it. Okay. Another thing I saw in C-SPAN. I don't always watch C-SPAN, but I happened to see this. It was a uh, congr congressional prayer breakfast. 
and they had all these uh, congressmen there. And you think, well, that's good. Congress still has prayer breakfasts. They still pray. There was a guy. He was the uh, Senate chaplain. He'd been the uh, director of the Navy chaplains for over two decades. And he gave a very, uh, he got up and he said, uh, I'm a preacher. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. A preacher uh, in Washington where nothing good happens. And he actually knew some of the scriptures. He told, told a couple stories from the scripture. And I'll sort of condense them. He told about Jehoshaphat. How many have heard of Jehoshaphat? Okay. People that read the Bible have heard of Jehoshaphat. Second Chronicles chapter 20. And he was a king of Judah. He had a huge army, over a million soldiers. One day, uh, he found out, through the, I think through a prophet, but anyway, he found out that there was an army massing, amassing against him, composed of the Ammonites. They're not friendly towards God. The Moabites and the Edomites. And they were coming against Judah. Jehoshaphat called for fasting and prayer. This uh, preacher, Senate chaplain, pointed out that these were two powerful powerful uh, tools in this toolbox. Fasting and prayer. And God destroyed the enemy. God said, don't worry, Jehoshaphat, you're not even going to have to send your army out. I'll take care of it. And so the armies came against him, and they, as they were going through this pass, God, I don't know exactly how he did it, but he destroyed them. The one group destroyed the other group. Then the, the uh, other two groups left, or these three, this alliance of three, they started killing each other. In the end, Jehoshaphat goes out, and the battle's over, because God took care of it. I was getting really encouraged. Then he, all, then he went to the New Testament. And he talked about Jesus coming down from the Mount, Mount of Transfiguration. And there was this person that needed to be healed. And so Jesus healed this person. And the disciples came to him later and he, they said, why couldn't we do that? And he said, this kind only comes out through fasting and prayer. Thought, oh, this is great. Now I'll just drop the negative on you at the end of his sermon this is what he said he said oh you talked about the government leaders he said we have a lot of problems but we can solve them he said there are tools available to us fasting and prayer he said fast and pray whether you're a Christian a Jewish man, a Hindu, uh, or this or that. And he said, you know what he's got? 
he just told us that the tools were fasting and prayer and that that would solve our problems. That will not solve our problems. Fasting and prayer will help if you're praying to the right God. But it isn't uh, the solution. Uh, I get to thinking about things in the past. I think of a man that I knew. A There are some of us here old enough to remember uh, some friends or relatives that were World War II vets. There was a friend of mine, a relative, I won't name names, but we were talking one day about the Second World War and this man said to me after, it's just been a few years back, he said, I'm not sure it did any good. I just, we sacrificed a lot, but I don't know if it did any good. He could see our country and the world going into chaos. All I could say to him was, well, maybe you bought just a little more time. And I think that's perhaps all that was gained was a little more time. Okay, Revelation chapter 19. I will say that this happens after there are a lot of Christians that what they look forward to, and there's nothing wrong with this, is the rapture. That's when Christ comes back and fulfills his promises to those who put their faith in him. He will deliver us from the wrath to come. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the wrath to come because that's what's here in uh, Revelation chapter 19. And we'll start in, uh, I'll read a few things in chapters 17 and 18. Okay, you Bible scholars, uh, you don't have to answer verbally, but how many have heard of the great harlot? <sighs> yeah. Babylon, the great harlot. <sighs> a very religious lady, by the way. But this, what happens here, takes place after the rapture. That means we're not here if we're a believer in Christ. And I, before I get too far, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, pay real close attention to the things that are going to happen in this world after the church, believers in Christ, are taken out. Because it's not a pretty picture. And as I've said about other circumstances, it does not have a happy ending. To make it clear, Jesus, the God-man, came into this world to save sinners. He has great compassion for the lost. He loves those who are lost. 
He went to Calvary and died on Calvary to take on himself the sin of all. And those who accept his sacrifice at Calvary as payment for sin, taking your place in judgment, if you accept what he's done as sufficient for your forgiveness, he will give you eternal life, everlasting life, free. No charge. You don't have to uh, promise to do this or promise to do that. He will give you eternal life free of charge. It was very costly. It cost Jesus all that he had. It cost him his physical life. It cost him uh, separation from God the Father. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And I don't like necessarily using these terms. In eternity past, outside of time, God, the three persons of the Godhead, were in a perfect relationship. And Jesus left to enter time to take on sin for those who would trust in him. And so we know about Jesus. We, saw, we sang a song, For God So Loved the World. And uh, we think of the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And now I'm going to get to the part about the Jesus I'll never know. Because I know that Jesus. I, I'm going to spend eternity with that Jesus. But there's another Jesus that talks that is talked about in Revelation that I will never know. And that's the Jesus that comes back to earth to judge. Let's just read a little bit about uh, this one that comes to judge. The uh, Babel and the Great Harlot. We've talked about that. You've, some of you have acknowledged you've, you've heard of that person. She, uh, and I, part of the reason why some people stay away from looking in Revelation is because there are so many different views of what this means and what that means. But let me just read a few things about what the Scripture says about Babylon, the great harlot. And this is what it says about uh, this person. Uh, let's start with uh, in Revelation 17 and verse 3. So he carried me away. Uh, this is John speaking, talking about uh, the things that were revealed to him. Let me start with verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, 
and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a, na forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I'm just going to steal some information here from uh, Schofield. And I'm going to read a few things about, if you've got a Schofield Bible, it'll be uh, probably in Revelation 17. There's a big box at the end, bottom of the page talks about Babylon. I'm just going to read a few things from there. The name Babylon is in prophecy uh, is sometimes in a larger sense than mere reference to either the ancient city or nation. There are two forms which Babylon is to have in the end times. Political Babylon and ecclesiastical Babylon. Now these theologians have a tendency to use these big words like ecclesiastical. There's a religious Babylon and there's a political Babylon. And they are tied together, at least for part of the time. Political Babylon is the beast, you've heard of the beast, the Confederate Empire, the last form of Gentile world dominion. Ecclesiastical or religious Babylon is all apostate Christendom. I think it might include more than those that claim to be Christian. It may very well be that this union will embrace all the religions of the world. Ecclesiastical Babylon is the great harlot, which we've already talked about, and is to be destroyed by political Babylon. So that the beast may all alone be the object of worship. So... Let's talk a little bit about, I'll, we'll talk a little bit about uh, some of the characteristics of this uh, Babylon the Great, the harlot, the political and religious power. And somewhere along the way, this is during the, I think it's during the tri tribulation period. It is after the rapture. I will, have, I will say I am a pre-tribulation an advocate of. I endorse that position. There are some that will say that the, that the rapture is mid-trib, and there's a verse here that, that would, uh, if misunderstood, might make you think that because uh, that's in chapter 18. But let me read a little bit about what happens with this between the political Babylon and the religious Babylon. It says in verse 14 of chapter 17, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those, who, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot and make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. And here's an interesting verse, verse 17 of chapter 17. For God has put it into the, the hearts, their hearts to fulfill his purpose 
to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And we've seen this in the Old Testament where God rules in the affairs of men and uses people that are absolutely anti-God to fulfill his purposes. And so this political Babylon, the people of the political Babylon, um, decide that they don't like this religious Babylon. Uh, perhaps it's, uh, of course it is counterfeit if it calls itself self-Christian, but it certainly, uh, they don't like it. They don't like religion at all. And so they uh, basically uh, move all the power to the beast. Uh, the beast doesn't mind religion as long as he's the one being worshipped. Chapter 18. There's a few verses there. And I will read just a couple verses there. One of the things talking about Babylon and its destruction being destroyed, fallen has fallen in verse 2, has become a dwelling place of demons and prison for every foul spirit. Verse 4 says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. And I thought, some people would say that's a, the rapture takes place in the middle of the tribulation because of that verse. He says, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to be like some of the preachers I've heard about that try to catch people in their questions so that they embarrass themselves by answering yes or no and, the, and uh, then it has to be explained to them and they sit in the, sit in the aisle, or they sit there in their pew and they go <laughs> get lower and lower until the preacher makes his point. Are there believers... I didn't say, are there believers uh, during the tribulation? Yes, there are. And this confirms that. He says to his people, God says to his people, come out from among them and be ye separate. Okay. Because why? And this reminds me of another time in the Old Testament where this took place. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Okay, you Old Testament scholars. Where did this happen before? Where the wickedness of a people or a city or cities reached to heaven. And judgment came. Where? Sodom and Gomorrah. And so... Before the cities were destroyed, what happened? What happened just before the destruction? Compared to here. It's come out of, uh, from them. What happened? God brought somebody out of that city. Wasn't very many, but he did it. He's not going to leave these believers, his believers, in this situation. And the reason destruction is coming, he says, for her sins have reached the heaven and God has remembered her iniquity. There is a temptation, I think, in my life at least, to discount 
to not appreciate how evil our world has become. The capacity, I, we talked about this Saturday too, sometimes we are uh, shocked when some thought comes into our mind or we do something and we say, where'd that come from? I didn't realize, even as a believer, I have such capacity for doing evil things or having such evil thoughts. Well, Babylon, whether it's political or religious, is not constrained by such things. This, in verse chapter 18, it talks a little bit about what uh, happens after with Babylon's destruction. I'll just start with a verse, verse 9 to start with in chapter 18. This is a, how they're responding to the uh, destruction of Babylon. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. And then it goes and it gives a list of what the merchandise was. And what struck me is in verse 13, and cinnamon and incense, they're going on with the list of the merchandise, fragrant oils and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. I'll just interject this. We're not going to have a service here tonight. So as you're home watching the Super Bowl, make a mental note now. Maybe during halftime, you can pray for the souls that are going to be affected negatively during this time. We live in a world, and it's endorsed and condoned by many people, even in our country, where the bodies and souls of men are being traded. You know the terms uh, that are on the news. It's called uh, child trafficking, sex slavery. There are thousands of people in our world today who are, we could call them indentured servants, but they're slaves. They've been purchased. Their lives are not their own, and they're being used for many things, including uh, as sexual slaves. Some of them are children. So it's only because of the Lord's mercy that even our country is not destroyed. But these are the things that they traded in. Verse 17 says, For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. 
Okay, Old Testament scholars, there's another quiz for you. It has to do with a man called Belshazzar. In the days of Daniel. And they were having this party. And what they did as they were concluding this time of rejoicing was they took vessels from the temple of God, things that were supposed to be used for the worship of God, and they were drinking from them and praising the gods of silver and gold. And, and what happened? Okay, scholars, tell me, what happened? The hand came up, wrote on the wall, and said, Time's up. <laughs> That's a condensed version. Time's up. The next day, this great king, Belshazzar, what happened to him? He's dead. He's gone. It's interesting. For in one hour, such great riches came to nothing. That's what's happening here with Babylon. And the world... The merchants of the world, much of the population is in anxiety. Oh, this, oh, this great rich, everything's such a disaster. What's the response in heaven? By the way, for you believers, you're there. And this is what happens in heaven. Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone and so on and so forth. And it says that they were rejoicing in heaven because of Babylon's destruction. Verses 24, it says, And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. I'm not going to get very far in chapter 19, but I want to at least get part of the way through. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, uh, translated into modern uh, terminology, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God for true and righteous are his judgments. And we'll get there in a few minutes. I, 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 I think that once we arrive on that heavenly shore and we see Jesus and we become like him because we will see him as he is, I think we will have a much different view of sin. We will be a lot less tolerant. We will be a lot, uh, we will probably have a lot less compassion for sin. True and righteous are your judgments. Verse 4 talks about those in heaven that say, praise the Lord, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And verse 4 says, and the 24 elders, that's a, a reference to the church, by the way, Christians, and they say that's for all those who believe in Christ from the day of Pentecost till the, till the rapture. 
I'm not sure I would be, uh, I would be a little reluctant to, to uh, I wouldn't die for that being the time of the, when the church started and when it ended. I think there are people during Jesus' lifetime that might be con- included that, anyway. But it says the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, praise the Lord, or Alleluia. Verse 6, Now I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And here's, we're only got five minutes left, but I do want to talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb. I found this, some of McLeod's uh, commentary on this. The Jewish wedding feast has three parts. One of them is the betrothal period. And in our day, we would call it the time of the engagement. The promise is made, then there's a time of waiting. Okay, quiz of culture here. How many of you have heard of uh, a hope chest? What's a hope chest? Who keeps the hope chest? Women do, don't they? Yeah. And what do they keep it for? They They have things that they're looking forward to. This is sort of my vision of the the betrothal period. The woman has had promises made to her. And so she spends the time between the promise and the wedding. She might, if she does needlepoint, she might sit around and she uh, gets out a notepad and she she practices signing, signing her name with her married name. Like my wife, if she was, I don't know if she ever did this, but she would write, instead of Catherine Harris, she would write Catherine Brown. Perhaps if they do needlework, they would sit around and they would take take a handkerchief perhaps and put a monogram with the initial of their spouse's last name. They're looking forward to to a time of marriage. Second part of the Jewish ceremony, after the betrothal period, the husband comes and takes this purchased possession, because in those days it was a purchased possession, the bride, he takes her to his father's home, and there is where the physical consummation takes place. And she is no longer just the uh, promised bride or the promised wife, but she becomes the wife of the husband. And I'm not going to get into what it says in Ephesians 5 because I don't understand it. When he says the husband shall leave his wife and be joined to his wife, 
And he says in the end of that chapter 5, and this is a mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and his church. And then there's the third part of the, of the uh, wedding ceremony that involves after the betrothal period, after the consummation, the physical consummation, there is a feast. And you will notice here it does, it does today we would think of a wedding as a feast for the bride. Everything today is about the bride. No offense, ladies. But what does it say here? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. The Lamb is the center of this. And his wife has made herself ready. What does that mean? The wife has made herself ready. I'll give you a couple of verses and then we'll read on. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Okay, so what happens with these good works? I think it tells us here. Verse 8, And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. If you're like me, you probably haven't done a whole lot during this betrothal, betrothal period to identify yourself and to uh, act in a way that would bring praise and rewards in that coming day. But whatever you have done, for Jesus, as a Christian, empowered by the Holy Spirit, tells us here that it's given to the bride to be arrayed in these linen garments, which are the righteous acts of the saints. Our time's up, but I'm going to finish with another little statement about this. This marriage supper which actually takes place after the consummation, sometimes in the Jewish culture, lasts for seven days. And I thought of the book of Esther. The king had a feast, and he would Vashti to come out. It was a seven-day feast that he had. And he would Vashti, wanted Vashti to come out so he could show her off. She refused. Here, incomprehensible, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and he has his bride there with him. Not his bride, it says here, his wife. His wife has made herself ready. He's going to be there with his wife. That's us as believers. 
showing us off, and to continue uh, in his kindness towards us for the coming ages of eternity. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. And then he talks about how he's just only a servant as well. And now, this is the part I'm not, I need to finish up because this is the part that would have coincided with the Jesus I'll never know. Because there's a Jesus here, starting with the verse 13 and on, verse 11 and on, actually. And again, his judgments are, he's faithful and true and righteous. And there are a number of people that die in this scene. Starting with verse 17 is the Battle of Armageddon. A great number of people are killed. And who are they killed by? It talks about this person on a white horse. And it says, he was clothed with a robe. This is verse 13. Dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, follow him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He destroys a lot of people. And these people are all people that were created with the likeness and image of God. And yet, Jesus here is not that kindly middle-aged man coming into town on a donkey. He's on a white horse, and he destroys a multitude of millions and two people, two people are captured and cast alive into the lake of fire. They were the first two occupants. And then if we go on in the, later in the book of Revelation, there's an another day when all come before this judge. And those not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life will be cast into the lake of fire forever, tormented forever away from the presence of God. That's the Jesus I'll never know. But those outside of Christ will one day know this other Jesus, this one that judges in righteousness and condemns them they're already condemned, but actually sentences them to a life or an existence forever separated from God in eternal punishment. 
It's hard to conceive of such a God, isn't it? To equate Jesus with this person? I asked uh, Alex a few days ago at one of the studies, uh, and Alex does this, my son-in-law does this. They have different translations of the Bible, which are not, they're accurate, but they use the term Yahweh and Jehovah. And I asked Alex that day, I said, uh, okay, is Jesus Yahweh? Is Jesus Jehovah? We know about Jesus uh, revealing himself in the Old Testament to different people. But this person that's judging here, it says, <coughs> has a white robe with, uh, he's got blood on it. It's not his own blood. It's not his blood on this robe. He is a, he is a warrior king. This isn't his first battle. In the Old Testament, like the story of Jehoshaphat, who was it that went out there and took care of that enemy army? Was it the Holy Spirit? I'll leave that for you to answer. Is Jesus a warrior king? This isn't his first battle. We're done. Let's pray. And we can all go home. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that we can know Jesus intimately as the Savior, the one who lays down his life for the sheep. We're aware that a day is coming when we don't comprehend it, but we will uh, be with him, like him, and during these war scenes, when multitudes are destroyed, we will be saying, Amen. Praise the Lord, for his judgments are true and righteous. We thank you that we can uh, be free, that we're delivered from the wrath to come. We ask that you bless the rest of our day. In Jesus' name, amen.